Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Escarton. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Rachel Kramer. Dr. Kramer is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She has specialized training in evidence-based eating disorders treatment, specifically family-based treatment. In addition to providing outpatient FBT and FBT-informed care to youth admitted for medical complications related to their eating disorder, Dr. Kramer's research focuses on evaluating eating disorder symptoms and treatment outcomes inclusive of all weight statuses. She has also recently authored an article in the Journal of Health Service Psychology and presented a continuing education webinar here at the National Register. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sam. I'm, I'm really excited to just speak with you today, and it's just an absolute pleasure, so thanks. Well, Rachel, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Even before we got on the call, we were talking a little bit about how you've been engaged in, in the National Register in a bunch of different ways over the last few months, and so it's such a privilege to be able to talk with you one-on-one -on -one and, and have a more in-depth conversation about atypical anorexia nervosa. This is an area where Truth be told, when I was in my own graduate school program, I was learning DSM-4-TR and like right at that inflection point to DSM-5. And so in some ways, when I started reading your work and thinking about uh, this newer diagnosis, I thought, I've got some learning to do. I'm guessing some of our audience does too. So take us through a little bit of a, uh, a trajectory about how eating disorders have changed between these DSM versions. Absolutely, and, and you're right. Atypical anorexia nervosa was added as part of a subcategory of um, other fe specified feeding and eating disorders um, of the DSM-5 prior to that, um, that wasn't there. Um, you know, I think, you know, just as a framework, I think the DSM-4-TR, um, you know, there was a lot of changes that happened in the DSM-5 that was really working to improve this. Um, and so DSM-4-TR really looked at weight as a major criteria for anorexia nervosa. Um, and so the first criteria was a refusal to maintain body weight at or above the 85th, uh, or sorry, less than the 85th percentile, excuse me, for height and age. Um, and it was based off of BMI. Um, it required that the individual had an intense fear of weight um, of gaining weight, um, and then having distorted or disturbed body image, um, so disturbed by one's body weight or shape, or their self-worth being significantly influenced based off of that, or minimal recognition that their weight loss was a problem. And then also needing to, for those who are menstruating, um, needing to lose their menstrual cycle for three, um, for three consecutive months. Um, and so I think um, one of the issues is that adolescents, we don't use BMI um, to, to capture you know, weight the same way, and people can lose their menstrual cycle at different points um, for a variety of different reasons. And so one of the things the DSM-5 tried to improve with the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa was to specify what weight loss kind of meant for adolescents by looking at age and sex-based norms, which is important, um, and also got rid of the menstrual um, uh, loss of menstruation um, as a criteria. 
I think the other thing that the DSM-IV TR to think about is that it it only had anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, um, and then another category, which is eating disorders not otherwise specified, which kind of encompassed everyone else. Um, and research actually showed um, that 50% of, of individuals who were diagnosed with an eating disorder actually were given the diagnosis of, of eating disorder not otherwise specified. And so mm-hmm. um, our criteria weren't super helpful Mm-hmm. at really kind of specifying, you know, what someone's eating disorder kind of looked like. And so the DSM-5 created the other uh, specified feeding and eating disorder subcategory to kind of be more specific so that we didn't have as much heterogeneity. Um, and so atypical anorexia nervosa was kind of added um, as this criteria because what we were noticing is that there was a considerable amount of, of individuals who were losing you know, a significant portion of weight and had been really experiencing um, or endorsing significant eating disorder behaviors, but weren't presenting to care at this, what we would call underweight category. And that's based off of population norms. Um, mm-hmm. So if we look at the, you know, the, the bell curve, right, being kind of, you know, in this lower weight extreme. Um, and I think that's challenging um, because I think a lot of patients who weren't were experiencing similar levels of eating disorder distress um, and and significant weight loss were actually not receiving you know the same. I think actually insurance companies weren't giving them the same support um, or covering them as much. There was treatment delays, um, and so atypical anorexia nervosa was kind of added to to help for this. And I, I'd like to read the actual criteria um, that the DSM five has. Um, for atypical anorexia nervosa. And that is that um, all of the criteria for anorexia nervosa are met, except that despite significant weight loss, the individual's weight is within or above the normal range. And that's mm-hmm. again, based off of population norms without considering where someone's been you know, throughout their growth trajectory. Um, and I'd really like to kind of argue that atypical anorexia nervosa and anorexia nervosa are, are the same disorder. It's really where someone's weight is when they present to care that's informing mm-hmm. the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Given what you're saying, Rachel, about it being pretty much the same, I'm curious what that means for severity too. So whether that's changes in heart rates or electrolyte imbalances, hospitalizations, how do you see the two comparing? It's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked because I think um, I think there can be a lot of misunderstanding around this. Um, research actually suggests that it's the amount of weight loss and the rate of weight loss that is more predictive of medical risk than weight itself at presentation. Uh And so, you know, I think actually sometimes when patients have atypical anorexia nervosa, there's been research to to suggest that they actually have had longer illness duration, suggesting Mm -hmm. that their eating disorder might not be detected as quickly which is concerning because we know that earlier intervention is actually related to better right. treatment outcome. Uh, research also shows that actually there's two times as many individuals in the community have atypical anorexia um, than um, anorexia nervosa. Um, and, it, you know, we have, I work on our medical unit here at UCSF um, and research. So I've seen it clinically, but also research shows that we actually have commensurate um, admissions between mm-hmm. patients with anorexia nervosa and atypical anorexia nervosa. Mm-hmm. Um, from a psychological perspective, there's research that actually suggests that having a diagnosis of atypical anorexia nervosa is associated with greater anxiety, 
depression and even eating disorder symptoms um, over self-report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uniquely, a person coming into, let's say your office may show up at what they call, quote unquote, like a healthy range in that BMI, but they're still meeting criteria in these other ways. Exactly. It makes me think like, okay, so, you know, we've got a lot of assumptions that we're carrying in with us about, you know, what a healthy range looks like, what that means medically, psychologically, but here you are presented with this, this new addition to the DSM, hopefully, um, helping people diagnose this, this, you know, unique kind of part where they're not underweight. But I'm also thinking about the severity that might be associated with this disorder too. Tell me a little bit about what this means. Because what in my head, I'm thinking about with anorexia nervosa hospitalizations, the threat of death due to imbalances and electrolytes and heart rate or, you know, arrhythmias and bradycardia and things like that. So I'm I'm curious, Rachel, if you can tell me a little bit about what atypical anorexia nervosa might look like or the severity associated with it. Absolutely. Um, and I might argue that someone with atypical anorexia nervosa is underweight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that we, you know, when we look at population norms, right, it's mm-hmm. a bell curve and not everyone's going to be at the 50th percentile developmentally. Sure. Um, so someone could have started, for instance, at the 85th percentile percentile mm-hmm. and then drop to the 50th percentile and they present and they look like they're in this, you know, average weight, weight range when really uh-huh. they've lost a significant portion you know, body weight. Um, And I think the thing that we need to think about, and I'm glad that the field is moving towards this, is instead of looking at, you know, where someone's weight has been compared to population norms, it's looking at where their weight has been, you know, based off of their growth trajectory. You know, there's some people who will always be at the 25th percentile. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some people who will always be at the 85th. And and so we really need to start to look at where they are based off of how they're developing. And then if there's been a change. Um, and you asked, I love that you asked the question about, you know, medical complications and, you know, medical risk between atypical anorexia nervosa and anorexia nervosa. Um, and what we're finding is that, you know, being underweight, again, based off of population norms in and of itself is not necessarily the best predictor of medical risk. It's actually the amount of weight loss or the rate of weight loss or the degree of eating disorder behaviors that are kind of occurring that are more predictive of um, medical severity, um, such as bradycardia, um, electrolyte imbalances, things that you've kind of mentioned. Um, And I think that's really concerning because I think um, patients with atypical anorexia nervosa are not always often detected um, as early on when they are presenting for care. Although, you know, research is kind of suggesting that that difference is um, maybe improving. And I think it's due to better recognition in the field. As you talk through it though, Rachel, my inclination is, okay, there's somebody that's presenting in a doctor's office, for instance, the doctor doesn't know, maybe it's their first time in to see that doctor or maybe, so they don't even have the the trend line. It sounds like this might be really difficult to assess or to, to assess, uh, uh, you know, reliably in that context. I- I'm curious what it looks like or how providers of all kinds are able to, to assess this, to diagnose it, um, given that that's so important to think about then the treatment process too. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, I think, thank goodness, um, you know, with electronic health records, I think it's easy to mm -hmm. kind of see growth, you know, charts, but not always. Um, you know, so I think it's always important to not just assume based off of, you know, what someone's weight is that, you know, that they're healthy or unhealthy, right? I, mm -hmm. We really need to be understanding what is someone's relationship with eating, you know, how are they, you know, doing in terms of, you know, activity, um, what's their relationship with their body. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's important to kind of look at someone holistically, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I actually was thinking about this. My brother is um, a uh, emergency medicine physician, and I was kind of asking him questions about, you know, is there any other way where we kind of look at, you know, someone's historical trajectory um, mm -hmm. and compare, you know, trends over time? And he was kind of telling me, and again, he's more of a medical doctor, so I might not be explaining right. this as effectively, but, you know, blood pressure is the same way. We all kind of have this blood pressure range that we're supposed to be in, but then, mm -hmm. you know, if we look at differences over time and there's a big aberration, right, that can mm -hmm. be really indicative of, of medical risk. Um, even though, you know, I think there's these medical criteria that we think um, represent, you know, health from that perspective. And so, yeah, I, I think it's just really about, um, you know, asking families, asking teens, you know, mm -hmm. also where their weight trajectory has been, you know, kind of getting collateral data. Relatedly, how how fast, how significant would the loss need to be to then meet this criteria? What what would we need to, to suddenly see? Mm -hmm. It's funny that you asked that because I think there, yeah. there isn't actually a specification for how much weight someone needs ah, to lose. Uh -huh. um, there's some researchers, um, Gene Forney has done a study looking at, is it five, 10, 15%, you know, and I think that, you know, that's still something that I think is being determined. I think it's challenging though, when we also have teens who are growing, right? Because mm -hmm. we've actually, I've seen, you know, situations where patients have maybe not necessarily lost weight, but they they haven't been growing for two or three years. And it's because mm -hmm. of their eating disorder behavior is getting in the way of, of, of growth. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that's challenging too. Mm -hmm. So you may see, especially given your line of work and your, your area of expertise, it sounds like among adolescents and youth that you may see something of a plateau that shouldn't exist at that point in their mm -hmm. lives. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn now to, to thinking then what the treatment process looks like, especially when you are working with youth at your, your area of, of practice at UCSF and, and seemingly in your authorship as well is really focused on this, uh, what you call the family-based uh, treatment model. And I'm, I'm eager to learn more about it because that's not an area of, of practice or an orientation that I was exposed to much in, in my own training. So Tell me a little bit about what happens next when you recognize that atypical anorexia nervosa may be presenting in a client or a patient. Absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, I feel very like privileged and lucky in the sense that I work on an interdisciplinary team where there's um, medical providers who are actually given the referral and then I'm then given a referral to, to work with families. That's not always the case in private practice, right? You might get a referral to see someone. Um, and so I think the priority and the most important thing to think about if, you know, with any patient who's presenting with, you know, an eating disorder is to assess for medical stability, um, mm -hmm. especially with um, people who, even if they're not presenting at this underweight category, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, 
that in and of itself is again not the the sole predictor of medical risk. And so even though someone might be presenting, you know, at the 25th, 50th percentile, you know, mm-hmm. so whatever and has lost a significant portion of weight, that could still be very, very medically concerning. And so I think first and foremost, I would ensure that you have a medical provider that, mm-hmm. you know, is on the same page as getting the patient back to their growth trajectory um, from the get-go. Um, so if the patient has been, you know, at the 85th percentile and that's where they've developed their whole life, um, getting them back there, especially if, you know, that they've been historically healthy that whole time. Um, but yes, you bring up family-based treatment. And so that's the, you know, one of the treatment, basically the treatment that um, has the most um, evidence supporting its efficacy. Um, and family-based treatment is is different than, you know, CBT or individual therapies that we we kind of think of. Um, eating disorders can prompt significant medical risk. It has the highest, um, second highest mortality rate in an adolescent second to opiate use disorder, um, among psychiatric conditions, at least. Um, and, um, I think eating disorders prompt teens who probably know they need to eat more to experience such significant fear about making changes. There's neurological shifts that happen, um, changes in, in body awareness. So interoceptive awareness that just make it really difficult for youth to, to kind of combat the eating disorder on their own. And so family-based treatment is really set up to reduce the medical risk first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, and then and to really get teens back into their lives. Um, and so it really occurs over three phases. Um, you know, I, I, the first phase is really having parents step in, take over nutritional choices so that the eating disorder isn't making um, dangerous choices for the teen. Um, so that the team mm-hmm. can kind of get back to where their 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 goal weight needs to be or your range, right? Where um, you know, again, it's individually driven. Um, and then phase two is to really give back some autonomy to teens um, so that they are able to kind of get mm-hmm. back to eating um on their own. And then the last is phase three, which is really um trying to help teens kind of get back to their lives um and pick up where they left off and and mm-hmm. um not have the eating disorder impact their lives the same way. Sure. Um, the even before phase one, as you were describing that kind of intake process of of recognizing what was their trend, what was their kind of general range before this happened, I'm or you know the like kind of expected growth trajectory, if you will. I'm I'm sort of struck by that and thinking about, wow, you're right. Like an interdisciplinary team seems really, really essential in these moments. Here I am in my private practice. You know, I don't have a scale. I don't have a weight. I don't have a a shared electronic medical record chart to be able to work across, you know, disciplines and across providers to be able to take a peek at some of that stuff, even if conversations um, are coming up. And so my gosh, Rachel, it, it sounds so, so important, especially given the risk that is associated with this too, to be able to, to be working across teams and disciplines and working closely with them too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Relatedly, I heard you kind of talk about that growth. Like it's really incumbent that we talk about the growth uh, or or retaining or regaining that weight, mm-hmm. kind of returning to the, the growth trajectory or the curve that would have been expected. That first step sounds challenging. You know, much of my um, learned, but also the what I've gained from the clients that I've served 
sounds like you know this is sort of one of their areas where they can control a little bit in their life and what i'm hearing in phase one is that that it is really really important to to start regaining weight or putting back on weight and i'm curious what that's like for the youth you serve your patients um, to be a part of that phase one what do you tend to see Mm -hmm. uh it is it's difficult for families it's difficult Mm -hmm. for teens there's a lot of distress Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's related to malnutrition impacting, mm-hmm. you know, how someone's able to cope. Um, you know, uh, there's a research study Ansel Keys um, did in Minnesota that basically had people lose significant portions of weight. And um, these men experience similar symptoms to patients with eating disorders, isolation, mm-hmm. irritability. Um, and so another reason why we really want to focus on improving um, medical stability and weight is that when these men re-nourished, all mm-hmm. of those symptoms really improve significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's really helping, you know, families kind of focus on, on, uh, you know, how can we help teens, um, you know, and, and they're the expert of their kid. I think one thing I didn't mention is that fam- family-based treatment really, um, is about empowering families to support their kids because we research shows that caregivers, you know, are their best, you know, the best support. Um, for kids and and really trying to say, okay, how can we help? And and they've been able to solve other problems. If kids haven't wanted to go to school, if they haven't wanted to mm-hmm. take medication, they've been successful too. Um, but it's this eating disorder really that that gets in the way. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's just about supporting them. You know, there's different techniques that we can use in terms of encouraging distraction during meals and, and different mm-hmm. um, things. But I think you know, another take home is really focusing on we're doing this to kind of help your kid get back to health and get your mm-hmm. kid back to doing the things that are really important and looking at how the eating disorder has really gotten in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if, if parents are anxious about their teens having to gain weight, if teens are anxious about having to gain weight, it's really focusing mm-hmm. on, on that aspect and, and their own individual need to get back to where they need to be for their health based off of their growth trajectory, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in working with parents too, I mean, the, my, my first place that I went to was like, oh, great. Yeah. I'm sure like parents are interested in helping and they understand that, you know, this, this is really vital for their child's health. And, but then I take a step back and I wonder what is that like working with parents too? And given that we've got these misperceptions in our society and biases about weight i'm assuming just like i have them that the parents would have them too or potentially would have some of these biases as well do you ever find it difficult to in some ways educate and help parents understand uh atypical anorexia nervosa and to get that their buy-in as well yeah, I mean, I think that unfortunately, diet culture, and I think some of the mm-hmm. messaging that we see in the medical field, especially, um, you know, with some of the, the policies that have been kind of recommended with, you know, right. this concern for, you know, the obesity epidemic, right? Um, you know, there's this focus on, you know, you know, on weight. Um, and mm-hmm. I think then we start to think that there's certain weights that people need to be to be healthy. And so it's really, you know, again, thinking about, well, has your kid been healthy their whole time, you know, developing, you know, why is, you know, there's been this emphasis on needing to be certain weights, but actually everyone's weight needs to be different. And so it's really providing that psychoeducation, you know, from the get-go. 
Um, you know, and we have proof even like from a psychological perspective that when someone has lost weight, even if maybe they've been at the 75th percentile, now they're, they're at the 25th, right? That they're engaging in all these eating disorder behaviors. They're having all these, you know, aberrant cognitions around mm -hmm. what amount of nutrition is needed, distorted body image that's, you know, directly related to being malnourished. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of also, you know, reinforcing that, but it's, again, it's helpful to have another provider who can kind of, especially a medical provider who can also, sure. you know, reinforce that. Cause I think if we're united um, it's helpful and, and we kind of encourage, you know, caregivers also to be united together when they're encouraging their, mm -hmm. their kid to eat. So it's, it's kind of a team effort. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking team community, all sorts of like shared collaborative mm -hmm. kind of environments that are necessary to make this work effectively. That next phase of the, the treatment process, it sounds like at the same point is also helping to engage and hopefully empower your youth that you work with to, to start thinking about how they can take some control of their treatment process as well, seemingly. So tell me about what happens in that phase. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, oftentimes we wait to go to phase two um, until someone's more medically stable and so potentially weight restored, um, you know, not um, kind of engaging in, in the same degree of of eating disorder behaviors such as purging or, or compensatory exercise, um, you know, eating disorders may prompt teens who are really scared about change with weight to sometimes high food or, or, you know, to avoid good at all costs, but, at, you know, at phase two, we're kind of looking for someone to kind of have a better, um, better ability to kind of, um, I guess, follow through with, with the, the meals that they're, they're eating again. It's, it's, mm -hmm. I think oftentimes just because they're, they have better nutrition, right? And so we're kind of seeing their cognitions improve oftentimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's really figuring out how do we get them to to kind of take more, you know, say, so sometimes it's, it's starting to plate their own meals. Sometimes it's going mm -hmm. out to eat with peers again, um, you know, or choosing different foods because the eating disorder at one point would only have them choose, you know, certain foods that felt right. safe. Um, so those are kind of the strategies that we kind of implement you know, over time to kind of continue to give back more um, uh, input with nutrition. Mm -hmm. Rachel, I, I really appreciate you you taking a, a deeper dive for me personally, but I, my hunch would be for, for those listening too about this disorder, the diagnosis, some of the history, the the treatment approaches and what makes it kind of unique, especially when working with youth too. I want to look at this at a more macro level as we begin to wrap up today too. And even as we've had this conversation, I really mean this, like even as we've had this conversation today, I'm I'm learning from you. And I'm like, that word you used earlier, you said re-nourishment or like being re becoming re-nourished. That's not like a word that I typically use in this context. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I've got so many, again, biases that I'm trying to work through. And but also thinking about how many providers may not necessarily even have some of the language around this too. I'm curious as professionals, how should we be talking about food and weight gain loss? Some of these aspects around diet culture that you're, you were referring to as well. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think, I think we have these criteria, right. That have been established by the CDC, right. Um, of being overweight and obesity right? quote unquote. Cause um, mm -hmm. you know, I think those terms are, can can be really 
pejorative that can be, you know, have a mm-hmm. huge impact for people. Um, you know, I think if people are presenting to care and someone, you know, someone is told, oh, you're, you know, this, I think it's challenging, especially if someone's been kind of healthy at that range their whole life, right? Is it, what, yeah. a, you know, here we have this, you know, this perception, right? And I think it can be pretty stigmatizing. And so one thing I think we need to be looking at is, is more just individual weight trends and where someone's weight mm-hmm. needs to be, you know, health-wise. I mean, I, there's been some people in our field who've just said, you don't really need to be weighed. Like weight doesn't necessarily always indicate health, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if the other metrics are healthy, right? So even thinking about maybe not doing weights, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, and just saying, have you noticed any significant shifts in weight mm-hmm. um, from that perspective? Um, you know, I think that it's important to be mindful of making comments about like, especially positive about, oh, you've lost weight, you know, to Mm -hmm. anyone, or if there is concern with aberrant changes in weight, you know, being mindful of even how we're kind of assessing it. I think if we just say, oh, you've gained a lot of weight, right. That can have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe understanding what, what is going on, you know, has someone, you know, had a change in eating behaviors? Have they been taking medication? Has there been a medical condition Mm -hmm. that's kind of prompted it? Um, I think another thing too, is that, you know, I think our diet culture and our focus on eating, you know, healthy, you know, while it's good to eat a variety of foods, I think sometimes, you know, especially if youth are experienced concerns about their weight or their shape, right. And they're told by their doctor, oh, great. You're like eating less carbohydrates. So you're cutting out fats, mm-hmm. right. That could potentially like actually reinforce an eating disorder, especially if we don't know where someone's eating has been, um, you know, and I, I've kind of seen clinically firsthand, you know, patients being told, oh, like, you know, it's great. You're eating, you know, healthier, right. Or, oh, you're losing weight or being mm-hmm. told, you know, and, and that can be hugely impactful to, to teens. I think the other thing that we forget, and I, you know, I've been trying to remind myself is that normal development for adolescents is that you're gaining weight every year. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so this idea that, oh, we should be, you know, maintaining weight or stable or, or you know, society pe- has these messages. And then, you know, it's normal for teens to gain one to two pounds, if not more, Um, you know, I think could be 20 to 30 pounds of weight gain over adolescence, right? That's, um, you know, and we live in a culture that focuses on don't gain weight and blah, blah, you know, Mm -hmm. so. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Especially when, uh, I mean, what I'm hearing in that is like, given your line of work, this is especially dangerous language especially dangerous language because it's just incongruent with the physical changes that happen in people's bodies over this part of their lifespan Mm -hmm. it seems deeply concerning to to come into the room and and to be either complimenting or even discounting or questioning changes that are simply about like oh it looks like you've lost weight so rachel i i appreciate you calling attention to that too of course. And I think we're all doing, you know, we're all doing the best we can and trying our best. Mm-hmm. So by all means, I think a lot of things can happen, um, you know, but I think it's important to be to be mindful. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for for taking the time to to share your expertise and and your professional background in regards to, you know, treating youth that are presenting with atypical anorexia nervosa. I I know that I'm I'm learning a ton from your your journal article and our talk today. So thank you for for being so generous with your time and and with the spending so much of it with the National Register too. Should people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they go? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, UCSF has a website and my profile is there. I'm also on ResearchGate. So that has um, more information about some of the research that I've published. So two different avenues um, to kind of find me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Rachel. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.